Welcome to PA Nation, the entertainment podcast about life below the line. I'm your host, Cooper Peltz. On this episode, we have stand-up comic and writer Will Miles, who started his career going to open mics and doing extra work before writing on shows like The Chris Gethard Show and Grownish. We discuss Will's past working in education, why he initially turned down working on The Chris Gethard Show, and the difference working in cable writers' rooms versus network. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Those things make all the difference for us to be able to make more and more of these episodes for you. If you'd like to contact us, please feel free to email us at panationpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram at panationpodcast. We want to hear any stories you have from working on sets or in offices. All right, thanks for giving this a listen. Here we go. If you have Masterclass, you can see him sitting next to Steve Martin while wearing a very cozy looking sweater. This is Will Miles. Will, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. <laughs> that sweater was was it was really cozy. It was not mine. That was I just remembered that when I saw the picture the other day. Did they have like a you know wardrobe person being like, okay, here's your what is that like business casual kind of? Like- yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I I think I walked in with like the regular stand up outfit because they didn't like I I don't think I was supposed to know it was Steve Martin. There was like I don't know oh, how really? much they told us uh, beforehand. Like I feel like I got privied information because my friend kind of set up the whole thing where she was like hey my friend's a producer they need an extra person like you're a stand-up so they need a person to do this masterclass thing and I was like yeah sure whatever you know I heard it paid I was like great and then I get there and like Steve Martin's there and we're like oh shit yeah <laughs> this is that's cool insane I didn't know that it was like a, a a secretive thing that's so cool yeah it was awesome and then I, I I'm actually wearing Beth Newell's sweatshirt oh really that's so funny yeah, yeah. It was so funny. She popped up on this on this masterclass and I was like, oh, my gosh, because like in my mind, she's like this huge deal with the reductress and everything. Yeah. hell yeah. And you, of course, with all your touring and stuff and, and your stand up and your writing, it's it's really cool that they like they brought on some like heavy hitters to be these like kind of almost they sold them as like novices, you know? Yeah, it was kind of funny. Yeah, I get recognized from that a lot. Like I, I was uh, at SNL and I was backstage and I, uh, <laughs> I was just hanging out. I'm, I'm good friends with uh, Gary Richardson. He's one of my boys, and so we're just chilling in like uh, in in uh, Kyle Beck's dressing room. And then there's this other guy there, and he's like, "Holy shit, hey man, I think I know who you are." And I was like, "Oh yeah, cool, nice. <laughs> You're one of the like four people who saw." the Comedy Central special. <laughs> he's, he's like, no, no, you're the guy from Masterclass, right? And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you got to be known for something, I mean, that's not the worst thing. Yeah, right I was next like, to yeah, Steve great. Martin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you, have you ever done, like, for people who haven't seen it, Steve Martin basically gave you notes on your opening. Is Was it for your half hour or for... No, that was before I got anything. That was uh, for just random, like, I was, I think I was like trying to film 10 minutes to send to somebody for an album, maybe. Did you, did you take his notes or anything? Yeah. You know, the, the thing about that class was like, it was more so cool to hear Steve Martin tell me that something was funny that I wrote. Yeah. So I was like, oh, well, I'll yeah. take the confidence from this alone is helpful. Yeah, totally. It's so funny, the tone of comedy now versus like when he was doing it. It's funny seeing him kind of give notes on something that he probably doesn't fully understand. <laughs> <laughs> he's like trying to like conform it to like his thoughts on on what comedy is. I, I really enjoyed that. It was a very interesting like 
analysis of an analysis of comedy. (laughs) (laughs) He talks about the utility of like education in comedy. And you were a teacher for so long. I mean, you went to school for you were an art major, right? Yeah, yeah. I was an art major. And then um, they told me that uh, the average artist makes about 5000 a year for the first few years. (laughs) And so I switched last minute to English. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Because I was like, all right, I like writing too. I guess I'll just switch to English. (laughs) And you went to school at like a pretty good film school right like who went like spike lee went there spike lee sam jackson yeah was it was that intimidating to go into that like kind of more writing area because i feel like art is incredibly subjective and then writing is very subjective but also people have very like intense strong opinions about it and and it almost feels like judgment on you know writing and stuff like that people feel like they have more ownership over their criticism of it or like their teaching of it did you feel any kind of like pressure going into like english not not as much i had a really i I wish i could remember her name but i had a really good teacher freshman year at morehouse who's ah man it sucks that i don't i think it might have been miss jackson but that could be completely made up because it was in atlanta and i'm thinking of outcast but but like my first teacher just she like instilled in me to talk about to like listen to Lorraine Hansberry and Lorraine Hansberry was all about using specificity to get to the universal so she was like you never have to worry about somebody being offended or somebody like having an issue with your writing if you the more specific you get so just whatever you write make it so specific to you that nobody can be like oh you stole that or oh I'm offended by that it's like well it's true Mm -hmm. it happened in my life so it can't be you know like offensive to somebody else it could be but I mean it doesn't matter at that point because it's your truth so it's like whatever yeah exactly it's like an inside out instead of like outside in maybe like uh thought process for creativity yeah, yeah. It, it really helped, especially with like stand up too, because then coming up, everybody was always talking about like joke thieves. And I was like, I don't think I can steal this joke because it's just about what happened to me <laughs> when I was like yeah. six. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's go back. So you, you're from Chicago. Yes. Which is a great place to be from if you're doing comedy. When did you have your first kind of like, I don't know, realization that like comedy was something that was a possible like life choice, you know, or like a something to pursue comedy was always on at my house which is you know look at look at the time you don't think much of it but looking back you're like oh that really influenced my whole life but mm-hmm. like we all my parents always had either like the new sinbad special on when that was on i really grew up loving sinbad and or like deaf comedy jam even when i was a kid like they had deaf comedy jam on because i don't know i don't think you have to worry too much as a, i'm a new parent now so i'm like wondering about what to show kids you know when when you're a kid yeah. but I, I think as long as you give them like an analysis of it and like you know like a, a good interpretation of what they they're supposed to take it for what it is and like it's just mm-hmm. this person's story it's not for you to repeat yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I, we watched f comedy jam we watched bad boys of comedy we watched all this kind of shit when i was a kid and i really got into it and then the i watched like damon wayne's the last stand i think it was called yeah that was when i was 14 i watched that and it made me like relate more than i ever had to a comedian and then when I was 18, I saw 17 or 18, one of those. It was my last year at high school at Whitney Young. And I saw um, Dave Chappelle's Killing Them Softly. And that one, mm. when that came out, I went to school the next day. I talked to my boy Barry, just everybody at school. I was like, did you guys fucking see that? That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and then we just, like, everybody started just talking about it all, all, pretty much all year. We talked about that special so much. And I remember being like, I think I might like do that. Because I, I would try to repeat some of the jokes from that at lunch and stuff. And it'd be like, this is 
that's the best thing I've ever seen. Because he actually mm-hmm. had like his slow pace was something that I identified with. The the stories about growing up around shit but not being a part of it, and like then also the stories about you know having a white friend who you hang out with and you're you experience life differently with one of your white best friends, and you're like, yeah, I didn't. This actually happened to me. So I'm I'm watching this comedian tell stories about shit that I've actually gone through. And, you know, I hadn't been, I hadn't had sex yet. So some of the Def Comedy Jam stuff I wasn't relating to as much, but it was funny. And it, like, it was objectively very funny, but I was like, well, I can't do that though. But then yeah. when I saw Chappelle, I was like, oh, I could actually, this might be a career choice. The, the just living in the silence of the audience. Mm, like mm-hmm. it, people hang on your every word. If you tell a story and you leave a, a long silent part in there and you're like, oh man, mm-hmm. you're engaged. You're not necessarily laughing, but the laugh is going to be so much greater after this. Yeah, totally. It's like being patient with the process of the story, I guess. So growing up in Chicago, I I heard someone on some podcast, you said your dad was like an entertainment lawyer or something like that, or he was in politics or something. What He did both. Did you have a, like any kind of like outlet as far as like an into the entertainment industry, like growing up? Yeah. So uh, we have a lot of uh, play aunties and uncles and stuff. So it was like... My dad got into entertainment law at some point when I was a kid, early on when I was a kid, because um, he, he, he was a lawyer and he did a lot of different types of law. He really didn't enjoy it. And so one of the ones mm. I know he enjoyed the most was entertainment law before he stopped doing law altogether. And uh, that part was fun because he got to go to L.A. a lot and he got to represent some pretty cool people. Like I met Common when I was a kid. He actually had me and my brother in the studio because our dad was his lawyer. So he had us in the studio for um, his uh, resurrection album. We got to watch him make one of the songs and stuff. It was very cool. And then uh, he used to represent uh, MC Hammer as well. So we got to go like backstage on the road with MC Hammer at like eight years old. <laughs> A good kind of two two ends of the spectrum. Of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of pop and then a little bit more introspective he's very introspective especially like he he's become more and more introspective and i don't know he seems very love-based now which is cool it's great to see somebody grow that way but at the time he was like drinking beer and <laughs> yeah that that stuff was cool though it was uh you you forget like you realize like back in the day there used to be a middle class and i know very everybody's very anti upper class now and i think a lot of it is because there is no middle class and so you're like yeah so looking back i'm like it's like an us and them type. yeah yeah and it used to be like you could be in the middle and i realized now that's what we were because i didn't have any knowledge that we were i knew we were doing better than some of my friends and some of my family a lot of my family so all i knew was okay whatever my dad does he's able to pay for other people's lawyers you know people can stay with us for a year at a time (laughs) without my input uh, <laughs> <laughs> whether or not you like it yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> my dad went to like law school and everything so he, he yeah. was able to and my mom worked for the the governor as well she was a nurse but then she just started working for the governor so like we had uh, we were okay as kids but we weren't rich because i also saw rich people so i was like oh that's rich and i was like that's cool they can like ask for shit and get it meanwhile my parents would be like well no that's ridiculous you know i'm not getting you that also we have to (laughs) pay for some other shit for somebody else (laughs) it's like yeah yeah yeah. and like you know my dad working with mc hammer was uh it's also very interesting (laughs) as far as like (laughs) how quickly this shit can go it's like yeah all right even though you have you know you have these huge record deals and stuff like that like if you're not you know saving money if you're not you know being wise with like what is being 
rightfully given to you because like he made some of the most catchy songs you know yeah and i just found out he produced them too so he was just all over oh that's he cool. made the entire song for can't touch this. oh that's sick yeah that is crazy whoa that's crazy. <laughs> you know it goes it goes so fast as an adult i'm very cognizant of that because i'm like ooh, no like it's well again new parents so i'm like very my daughter's gotta not know <laughs> that her dad <laughs> the tv writing is like okay <laughs> yeah yeah because <laughs> their uncles and shit are like acting and shit or play uncles you know they're doing well <laughs> yeah we're we're surviving i feel like a little bit of insecurity is a good thing <laughs> absolutely yeah you shouldn't be able to get whatever you want well i think i know people like that who are adults and they're assholes and as a teacher you can see that with like you have a rich kid and you're like oh you're a fucking dick <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so so while you're in school, does Candyman come out like while oh, you're yeah. in school? Yep. It was very scary. Okay. Was that? Yeah. I That would have, if someone was like, okay, so there's like this terrifying, you know, movie that takes place in, like I'm in San Diego right now. Like it takes place in Escondido. I would never want to go near <laughs> Escondido. Like what did that do to you as a kid doing like, okay, this is a super scary movie and uh, I'm going to school right next to where it's set. Yeah. Yeah. And we weren't very far from it. It was like, <laughs> but the thing was, I knew a part of me knew that was fake. I was, well, yeah. I, I don't know. I had, I had to have the belief that I think it helped me that I was like, there's no way he's real. That helps. <laughs> like <laughs> he can't be real. Yeah. I've been over there. I know the things that I should be worried about. And I know one of them is I definitely seen not any giant in. bonfires. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was like, and the thing about Chicago too, that, I mean, we love to talk about our city so much, but it is like very weird <laughs> that you don't think about how everyone is experiencing Candyman. So yeah. we're just like, man, that, that's crazy. Because as a kid, you're just in the area. You're like, that's fucking nuts, man. Candyman is real. He's in there. And I'm like, nah, he's not real. He's not in there. But meanwhile, the, the movie did well in the country, <laughs> but we had no clue. Yeah. I mean, I watched it for a film class in college. <laughs> so... When did you realize you wanted to be an animator? Like that was like a big yeah. pull in your life? Animator probably, that one was probably eight years old or so around then. My uh, parents got me this, uh, it was Tex Avery, I think, a, a book about Tex Avery or like, or Chuck, uh, I'm forgetting the last name, but I know we, I had like a few books about animators back in the day and they, they showed everything with like the, the cells and the, then like the sheets you put over it. And how many drawings it takes to actually get something animated. And this is, you know, the 80s and 90s. So there was no digital shit yet. So it was all, everybody was just talking about how many drawings you had to do. And I'm like, Jesus. Okay, I guess I'll get on it. <laughs> and then they put me in this uh, couple programs for art in after school. So I uh, I really got into it then. And I was like, yeah, that's definitely what I want to do. And then my whole childhood, I until that Dave Chappelle special, I was like, oh yeah, set in stone. I'm definitely going to be an animator. There's no doubt about it. I also didn't do much, though. So I was like, most of my childhood was me drawing. I didn't know. Yeah. And I thank God I'm, I was born when I was born because I didn't know other people were doing shit the whole time I was growing up. So I was like, I guess, I don't know what the, I have not thought at all about what my classmates are doing. <laughs> like, <laughs> all I know is I'm drawing and then I'll see them at school tomorrow and we'll hang out there. But I had no clue. Yeah that anyone was hanging out so <laughs> <laughs> that's good pre-social media i feel like 
a lot less like social anxiety maybe because it's like yeah no one's no one's hanging out without me yeah like, there's <laughs> <laughs> everyone's alone in their room drawing right this is, this is totally normal <laughs> I, feel, I didn't know like i have i have uh nieces and my wife's nieces who are also my nieces but they're like they were just talking about like you know they were able to see that some friends hung out without them and i'm like oh my god I, that would that would ruin me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I, I didn't have that at all. They would have to call a landline yeah. phone to hang out and like all this other shit. <laughs> so no, they did not have it. Yeah. Nobody hung out outside of, or if they did, I didn't know. Yeah. There's this book by Douglas Rushkoff, who's like a electronics internet age kind of philosopher guy. I don't know. He, he wrote this book called present shock. His thesis is basically because of the internet, there are like infinite numbers of presents rather than like when there was no internet, you only had your one singular present where it was like, okay, I'm in my room and I am drawing. Yeah. Where yeah. now it's like, I'm in my room and I'm drawing. And now, you know, I can be virtually at this, uh, you know, party where my friends are hanging out without me. And now virtually I can be over here. And it's just like causing like almost like a data being overwhelmed uh, because of all this data input that we're experiencing and i was like yes that's exactly like what i've been feeling all of my college like, yeah, life yeah. <laughs> you know it's it's so tough i i'm i luckily not to give age away but i luckily escaped all of it through schooling well facebook was at schools when i was uh, a senior it just got to my mm. school when i was a senior and it was only you could only talk to people at your school and then by yeah. like second semester you could talk to people at other schools or something like that, but nobody else. So it was like this, you know, it was just this stupid thing where you could like write on a girl's wall, like, hey, we met here. I didn't get your number, but glad that you're on Facebook. So here's how I get your number now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that part was cool. I was like, this is amazing. When it got to like everyone, I was like, I, I don't know how to like even navigate this. <laughs> yeah, this is too much. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I feel like most of these episodes that I've been recording is just me being like, I don't understand social media. Teach me about <laughs> it. So I'm glad I'm glad we're on the same page. Yeah, oh, I don't get. I, and there's my thing with Twitter now that I I don't know if this is like even interesting at all. But <laughs> like, <laughs> with Twitter now, I'm so upset because everybody comments on things without saying what it is. And I think mm -hmm. just today I saw Twitter added a function where they'll put what the trending topic is talking about. Oh, that's so helpful. They put the article up or something. Cause it used to be yeah. like, why is this trending? I can't believe this is trending. And then you're like, I don't even know. I don't know what this is. And I don't know yeah. why it's trending at all. And I, I wish yeah. it wasn't. Cause all I see is people <laughs> asking why it's trending. So you graduate in, with an English, English degree. Yeah. And you come back to Chicago. And when do you start stand up? Not right away. I knew I wanted to be a stand up. Also like, I had, I had never really done any live performances either. I was pretty shy. And then at some point in college, I uh, my buddy Clark, who I'd been doing comedy with now for over 20 years, uh, <laughs> professionally <laughs> 12 years, but as uh -huh. friends, like 20 years. But he hosted, he was in student government a lot, and he was very much a more outgoing person. So he would always like do these different things. And he, would, he hosted a talent show in high school. He ran for SGA president against like a bunch of people who are now really well known uh, <laughs> like when i when Drop i look at the people, names okay bakari sellers uh lee Merritt. these are like very important oh, wow. people now <laughs> yeah but back then they were just people i drank with <laughs> i'll look at like a thing and be like oh my god this person's leading this march 
oh, it's Lee. Wow, <laughs> Lee is important. Wow. Uh, yeah. Or like Bakari's got talking points on every show. That's Bakari. He was just the tall kid who was a year younger than us, but like was a year ahead or something. That's so crazy. <laughs> but like, yeah, because Sean, Sean King was ahead of us at the same school. And I mean, I would never like tell anyone to listen to Sean King anymore. But <laughs> but he's but notable. Back then it was like, whoa, Sean King's doing a lot. But <laughs> yeah, now it's like, please, whatever you're going to listen to Sean King. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was about to be like, oh, this is an interesting term. <laughs> what if I just Sean got King in here and defended Sean King? <laughs> yeah, I love that. Hot no. takes. <laughs> it was like, a, it was a lot. And like my RA freshman year is now like a White House correspondent. Jeff Bennett, he's on the news all the wow. time. It, it's like a lot of people you're around and you just didn't know what people were doing like in terms of school <laughs> i think that's what it was like we were we all hung out together but we never talked about like our classes now it's like oh wait was that your major i didn't even fucking know yeah. <laughs> you're like a poli sci major <laughs> right <laughs> like we're talking about like south park and you're <laughs> <laughs> like one of our buddies is also the mayor of of birmingham now and you're like damn oh I, my didn't, gosh. I didn't know you were going to do that at all like i had no yeah. clue but I guess if we talked seriously, instead of me being stoned out of my mind all uh-huh. the time and you guys being probably not stoned enough, I'm being honest, I didn't notice because I was so high. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, what do you guys do? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I haven't been to class in weeks. <laughs> what are you guys yeah. up to? <laughs> that's like your that's like your bit about watching the news. It's oh, like, yeah. I realized I was so stoned. I was hanging out with like prominent politicians. Like, <laughs> Most of my twenties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Literally, literally, I, everybody I hung out with, like I'm, I, I'm on Instagram and I'm looking at them and they're like running for city council, running for this. I'm like, really? You guys all were. <laughs> that was what you were going for. <laughs> I had no idea. I thought yeah. you were just cool. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out you have good ideas. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> you might change the world. What do I know? I don't know. <laughs> but but Clark was one of those people. He was in like government and everything. He had this um this forum called Why I Love Black Women and he had a last minute dropout. I was there. So he was like, "You want to do it?" And I I got up there and I didn't know, you know, I had a lot of reasons, but I was everybody else was like really <laughs> smart sounding and I was like, "I uh-huh. you know, I'm I'm a relatively smart guy, but I don't care <laughs> so <laughs> and i never have i'm like yeah whatever whatever uh, yeah sure i've read a lot of books whatever i i yeah. barely go to class especially in college i was like i barely go to class i mostly am here to hang out and talk to the spellman girls and so i uh, <laughs> so i got up there and just started making jokes for like an hour and everybody was laughing and like all the yeah. cool people on the panel were like they were like we needed that laugh also because it made it easier mm. for us to be up here giving these talking points and i was like maybe i'm supposed to do this for real yeah like i know i was talking about it but maybe i should do this for real when i left school it took me a little longer and i had a lot of alone time in the summer trying to get my um finished school mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so i was alone watching the e true hollywood stories and i watched the chris farley one and he he was talking about improv olympic chicago and i was like well mm-hmm. shit as soon as i get out of here i really gotta actually do this shit so i i started at improv olympic in chicago probably a I graduated in, or I, I finished school, I should say, in maybe like August, September. Didn't get my diploma till much later, like December, or maybe even <laughs> maybe even June. But mm-hmm. but I uh, <laughs> but I I started IO right away, and then I did that for two years, 
and I was confused about what I was supposed to do as far as comedy. So I was like, I mm-hmm. guess this is how you get into stand-up. And then at some point, one of my teachers, this guy named Joe Bill, was like, hey, you're supposed to, you know, it looks like you really want to do stand-up because you don't really seem to enjoy the rest, the other parts of this other than when you get to talk <laughs> alone. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to do stand-up. He was like, well, here's what you do. You go out and do stand-up. <laughs> he was like, find some open mics, do the stand-up. You got your stage right out now because you've been doing this mm-hmm. for a long time. So now just go actually do open mics. And then I was like, Oh, okay. I, I hadn't even honestly thought of that. Yeah. And that's free. So Yeah, exactly. It's totally free. Win win. You you may have to pay for one drink, but and then I, <laughs> I had I had done like a few open mics and it, early on especially you get the satisfaction of doing it more than you mm-hmm. get the satisfaction of being good. So you're like I I did I did it again today. And you're like, I can't believe <laughs> I did it. I got maybe one laugh, but I like the first time I crushed, second time I did okay, and then it was just a bunch of like middling. So I was like, well, hey, I did it though. I did it. I've done it now five times in five months. And then a couple open mics later, I was was out with my boy Drew Freeze. We were doing a bunch of open mics. And then uh, this guy, Danny, came up to me and told me, Danny Callis, he was like, you know, you got the chops, but you you don't go out at all. You to do be good at stand up, you got to go out every night. He was like, look at Hannibal. Hannibal was out every night and he just booked, uh, at the time, it was like Craig Kilborn. I was like, oh, okay, Mm. yeah, maybe you got to got to go out every night. So then from then on, I just, every single night I went out and did stand up three shows a night for the next six years, <laughs> nonstop. <laughs> wow. And then moved to New York and then same thing there. It was like, all right, well, I'll just do the same shit I did as far as, you know, going in and out and doing it all the time here that I did in New York. Only there was more opportunities in New York. And then that's kind of where it all changed from there. What kind of path did you see with stand up? Like, did you have like a long-term plan or were you like, I really enjoy this now? Like you had, you, you were teaching and you, you had different, you know, day jobs. The teaching thing I had in Chicago was more so paraprofessional. So it wasn't like good money. Mm. It was enough to occasionally pay rent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was late on a lot of rent and uh, my roommate Adam took care of a lot of it, but I, I am paying him back as we speak. <laughs> but, <laughs> But Chicago days was a lot of like me being very broke and me like as a teacher's aide, you don't make too much money. And as a teacher's aide, you're kind of you feel you definitely feel sometimes like you're not as respected as the teachers. So you have these things. Meanwhile, you're also working with kids who uh, sometimes, I don't know, they, they, they take a little extra longer to learn. So you need that patience. So sometimes being out till 4 a.m. the night before makes you lack that patience but yeah uh and so then also like it's just a lot of a lot of things adding up into one where you really don't want to work there <laughs> so it was a lot of <laughs> most of chicago was me being like i i can't do this job anymore and I, and how do i get myself to stop doing this job anymore it's not even really helped me pay rent it's like i i managed to pay rent but then like situation happens where comet comed the bill is twelve hundred dollars because you didn't realize you didn't pay it over six months and that twelve hundred dollar yeah. bill means you're now you can't eat for like a week so it's like <laughs> yeah all right what do i do now i hate this job at this point because now i'm broke and so it, i think but i think even seinfeld said something like get a job that you don't like because if you like your job you're going to want to stay there and so it was like a lot of jobs i didn't like where i'd be like i, I have to do well in stand-up so that 
that was the motivation too for me being like i must do four shows tonight and yeah. I, I have to go on the road and open for uh hannibal or or uh or eric or like somebody else or like people who are now canceled where it's like i have to open for this canceled person <laughs> whatever <laughs> i'll open for yeah fucking Callan. I don't care. <laughs> like at the time I didn't know him at all. And I was like, yeah, they're offering me this thing. I'm going to take it. I have uh-huh. to get out of this job. So that was a lot of, yeah. I think having a job that you don't like is probably the, that was the biggest influence in me getting better at stand up, Bringing it to kind of people who are doing below the line work and stuff like that. Like, I think that point of if you're doing a job that you don't like, use it as fuel to work on your, what you do want to do that much harder multiple times on this show people have said you know i came to a point where i was doing a job you know whatever i was like producing whatever kind of like whatever talk show or like i was producing yeah. e-true hollywood story <laughs> yeah, whatever. yeah and i was making good money and like things were going well but like I, this is not what i set out to do you know like in la like i wanted to you know be a dp or whatever but like now they're kind of locked into these like I think in law working at a uh, like at a big firm, they call that like golden handcuffs because yeah. you're making, you know, you're making so much money. But then you're you're you have so many hours that you have to work and then you want to quit. But then like you can't quit because you, you know, bought this big house and now you have to pay for that and all this stuff like it just like builds and builds. And so there is like that advantage to to sticking it out when you have a tough job that you don't enjoy and say like, you know, you're PAing or whatever on like a dumb reality show. Yeah. But you actually want to be a stand up. It's like, keep doing that horrible show. A, you'll get like material probably. Yeah. <laughs> and B, you'll have that fire to like even though you work 12 hours you're like i can't i can't keep working 12 hours i'm gonna go out to an open mic or whatever you know whatever it is i think that's such an important point for people to to kind of understand and once you understand that i feel like the depressing job that you have becomes less depressing because there's a way out like there's a there's a light at the end of the tunnel you know definitely and you even you even like get inspired during the day now but like when i was working at the school i'm like thinking about shit from last night instead of working and then I'm like I gotta yeah, write that yeah. down so then it's like <laughs> there's such a different motivation when you are doing something you know for a fact you don't have any aspirations to do because like every, a lot of people there would be like you should just become a full-time classroom subject teacher and I would be like I have but I have no interest in that at all so that's not going to mm-hmm. happen like I, you could you could go back to grad school and, and actually be like, you know, in the classroom. And I'd, I'd always be like, I'm not I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm doing stand up. I'll do this until I'm good enough to leave this job. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. And then I, I didn't realize you get a little retirement package, too. Yeah. That, those, those unions, man. I had no idea. I heard I I heard that, on you know, I don't know, another podcast or maybe an interview or something like that. And I was like, I did not know that you could just cash in your retirement. Like yeah. That. Yeah. They advise against it because they say, what if you come back? And but when you're leaving to like for me, it was leaving with still just hopes and dreams of New York. I didn't honestly know how I was going to get to New York. And then they were like, well, if you're going to leave and there is the option to take your retirement now. And I was like, yeah, what? I can afford rent. <laughs> All right. I, yeah. And then you're mad because you're like, I've been sitting on this fucking money for how long? <laughs> yeah. I could have left Is there last an option year. to just never pay into my retirement? Yeah. Is yeah. that something I could have done? <laughs> you guys just had this lying around? Luckily, yeah. it, it helped me 
moved to New York, but Jesus, I didn't know I had money. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, there's a term like coming into my head. I don't know where it's from. It's like burning the ships. Like once you like make landfall or whatever, you know, <laughs> like you're never going to go back to wherever you came from. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's another like very important. I feel like for a lot of creatives, a very important step in that because it is, because it is such like a nebulous world that like you're stepping into. I feel like even especially New York where it's just like so much culture going on, so much everything happening. You're like, Oh, maybe at some point you're like, Oh, maybe I could go back to Chicago, you know, and, and, yeah. and still do stand up and, you know, get my old job back or whatever. But now that you, you know, you don't have your retirement and you don't have all this stuff, it's like, okay, no, I'm going to stick it out. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was all a lot of like, you, whatever you do, you cannot fail and go back to Chicago because that is, yeah. to me, that was like that you're failing if you do that. Also, where are you going to yeah. go? <laughs> <laughs> At what point were you, uh, you're credited as American extra on SpongeBob SquarePants 4D The Ride. What is that? A- yeah, I don't know what that is. I I, yeah. I saw that on my IMDb. I was like, I've never. I wish I was in SpongeBob. <laughs> <laughs> I was like taken aback, and especially the funniest thing to me is that on your IMDb, it's 2005 SpongeBob SquarePants 4D Ride. And then 2013, SpongeBob SquarePants 40 attraction, the Great Jelly Rescue. I was like, man, he came back not eight years later to reprise his role as American Extra. It's like, man, that's commitment to the role. That's like a, a Richard Linklater like situation, like after midnight type situation. I wish it was like true of my life. I'm like, how do you get this off there? Yeah, that's. That's so funny. Okay, so at what point do you start doing, you know, extra work or or whatever kind of, you know, starting to to dip your toe into production? It actually started uh, while I was at I.O. They did a thing where they asked for some students. They sent out like an email saying students could uh, could be extras if they sent in some shit. So I sent in a bunch of stuff to whatever, just like a random headshot. My friend Constance, God bless her, she's great, Kostrevsky. When I was starting out, she uh, she was like, I'll do your headshots. And at the time, she was like doing this rap with the cool kids. She was their personal photographer. So I was like, cool, my shit's going to look dope. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who works <laughs> with the cool kids, obviously, it, my shit's going to look really dope. And it did look really dope, but I had nothing behind it. So like you have just a headshot with zero resume. And then yeah. <laughs> somebody just told all me. all packaging. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, I got the picture and it says, well, Miles, what have I done? Maybe five shows. And other than that, absolutely <laughs> no acting or writing or anything work. And then, but they were like, you need a headshot. So for that reason, I got her to uh, give me headshots and I sent them to the guy and they put me in this commercial. I was laughing in the background. It was like some, I want to say like auto trader commercial. And uh, that was one of those moments where you're like, I cannot believe how long this takes. <laughs> like, yeah. Like this is, it kind of like made me not want to do it too much longer. Cause I was like, this has mm. been 12 hours and all I'm doing is, <laughs> is sitting here laughing. And like, I don't yeah. even think I'm getting paid that much. Yeah. And, uh, so I didn't do it that I, I didn't get it. I wasn't like super into it at that point, but then like a couple of years later, I'd done more shows and I was like starting to do better. And my buddy, Steve, uh, he, he was like, I got the lead on, we can be extras in this Garmin commercial. The Garmin, like, uh-huh. the, before the Google Maps type shit. Like the GPS? Yeah, yeah. GPS. And uh, <laughs> and so we're, there's a Garmin commercial where me and him are, I think, playing football or something in the background. And it, but it, it also took, like, 
six hours maybe yeah or like so your a, arms just like dead yeah like by a the end of it stupid amount of time and <laughs> I, it's like god this kind of sucks at that point i was i was like well this is what you got to do though i don't know any other way were you looking at like the kind of like apparatus behind the shooting and stuff like that like yeah. were you noticing any kind of you know, okay, there's the director, there's the, like, these people must be PAs, all of that kind of stuff. Was that clicking in your head or were you like more just like, get me out of here? No, no, I was, I was more into that. Cause that I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't like extremely sure how much I wanted to do like filmmaking. But when I was a kid, my brother was also an actor. And so I would always, mm. he would like act and I would always be like, well, one day I'm going to write and direct you in a movie. Kind of like, just being like hopeful dreams. We all knew we were going to Morehouse where Spike Lee went. So I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm a little Spike Lee. Maybe I'll do some Spike Lee shit. But then when you're on set, you're like, oh, it, it actually is interesting what's going on behind the camera. So even as far as like being an extra, it was more so an end for me to be watching sort of what, what went on behind the camera and what it took to make everything happen. Cause we were the extras, you know, they say they're important, but when you're an extra, you certainly feel like the least important person on set. So you're like, well, what's the most important person on set doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> let's, let's switch. Yeah. Which, which one is he? And it's the director. And How so, is he being treated? Yeah, exactly. Director's got all the love. So it's like, yeah. Or right, he's the least, the most listened to on set. Yeah. He has a chair. At yeah. Least, you know, unless it's a TV show. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I, I haven't yeah. directed a TV show, but it does feel like at that point, the writer might be the showrunner is probably the most important on a tv show yeah i'm excited to talk about all of that stuff but first now it's time to hear from another member of pa nation this is walkie talk so this is an experience uh, a listener has had on set they sent it in um, today's story comes from megan sullivan you can follow her at sister megan on twitter and instagram this is what she says. I started as a production intern in Los Angeles, which is more or less an unpaid art PA. It was good professional experience where I could learn a lot. After the show wrapped, I went home to Chicago. For like 10 days, I was there and I learned a huge difference between working in LA and working in Chicago. Chicago is smaller and everything is more community-based. In LA, only grips do electric, period. Only hair and makeup touch the actors, period. In Chicago, it's like, if something needs to get done, it gets done. Also, there's less money, so the currency ends up being gossip. In Chicago, I ended up working with Wardrobe on an indie movie in LaGrange, funded by the owner of the home we shot in, who was also the lead in the movie. This sounds fun and like homegrown, but the way the production was moving... Like, the best way I can describe it is, you know, the vibe you get when you look at a very tanned, very white-haired, very white-teethed old guy, like <laughs> 2018's Dick Van Dyke, and he's on a yacht, and he's not looking directly at you, but you get the sense that he wants you to look at him like, man, that guy's really on a yacht right now. You know that feeling? That's how this lady was walking around her home uh, with a full film crew in there. She was giving tours of the place, talking about the pictures and the walls, telling stories about her kids and all this stuff. Uh, when the set PAs would say rolling, she did not care. To her, the whole thing was performance, and she was the constant star. I loved her. The movie will never come out. It will never make any money, but it is worth a lot of gossip. I also only work in television now, and that's her experience. <laughs> it's interesting the people that you meet in any of these commercials or any of these more, you know, before you were a writer or anything like that. Did you have any kind of like <laughs> crazy interactions? <laughs> 
there's definitely people on commercial sets that I've been like, this guy is really cool. And it's usually, I really get along with cameramen pretty well. Uh-huh. <laughs> and like, they're always kind of eccentric. <laughs> the lighting guy especially is always very eccentric. And they're always, they always have some other shit going on. I don't know, but it's, yeah. on set, everybody has such an interesting life that you would never, like I say, the showrunner feels most important and the director feels most important, but it's, it's the conglomerate of the other people who are the actual mm-hmm. most important. And yeah. then you look at their individual personal lives and you're like, you you live a wild life. <laughs> like, because <laughs> like, nobody checks on you. Everybody is looking at what the director's home <laughs> life is like, but nobody uh-huh. is checking what, like, the uh, the grip's life is like at home or, like, uh-huh. the lighting guy. And it's always some wild shit they're telling you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> these guys are cooler than all of us and these ladies. Like, they're they're all, the cameramen, the camera women and cameramen at the Chris Gethard show uh-huh. are maybe some of my favorite people in the whole world. i loved all of them so much (laughs) was that i i have so many questions about that show but did that feel like because it felt like a pirate ship like the whole the whole vibe of the show it felt like very like pirate radio you know that kind of thing like underground and was that the vibe like with the crew as well yeah definitely everybody there knew the goal and knew that it was like you know we weren't really uh doing something that was like any other show that they were going to ever work on. Mm-hmm. And they kind of knew that. And like, I didn't go to grad school, but get the show definitely feels like sort of a grad school. Cause you have to learn every part of the job. I think when you work there at every other show, there's such a, and I've noticed this, the more like mainstream the show is that I've worked on, you know, everybody's role is so clear cut yeah, and so defined. And they're like, so you have to stick to it almost. It's kind of like mm-hmm. what uh, she was saying about, LA and difference between LA and Chicago. Yeah. And the way she was describing Chicago kind of feels like Gethard show where it's like, if something needs to get done, you just do it. You don't really, there's no like, well, my title is this. So I'm doing this. I need to get you to do this. It's like, Oh, I don't give a shit. <laughs> 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 like, whereas here where there's things, especially the, the bigger the show you work on where they'll be like, this is a job for an intern or this is what a writer assistant is supposed to do. And, and, and I, I honestly didn't like that when I worked in shows like that. I don't mm-hmm. enjoy the titles and all that stuff. I think it's all bullshit anyway. It's you're just there to make a good product, and that's what they told you at Gethard Show all the time. Was like we're just here to make a good product. So whatever you can do to help that, you know, mm-hmm. take out the box ideas. That's the more fun thing, and that's yeah. When it's like that, it's the uh, to me, it's a better environment. It's so much more fun because you're like, you know, sure somebody's title is co-producer, but then the intern is just as can feel just as involved because you can you're like you're doing the same we're working on this together if we don't do it together it's not going to get done so i don't need to like dictate things to you we can both lift this thing i don't know (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah totally it's definitely having that mindset i found like on the sets that i've been on where that is the mindset everyone is so much more relaxed around each other, you know, because it's like, you're not walking on eggshells. You're not like, Oh, if I do this, will someone get mad at me? Like, and there's much, there's a greater uh, chance of like upward mobility almost because you do get that experience as like an intern. And then all of a sudden you can be, you know, you can just be brought on as like a PA or like someone's assistant or whatever. And it's like it's such a better environment because you can show what you actually can do rather than like, okay, I am just gonna get 
this person's lunch for six yeah. months or whatever. Yeah. You know? yeah. Every job I've had since then, I owe so much to the Gethard show probably. Cause I'm like, you know, I learned so much on the spot there. And I like when we write, when you write the episode on Gethard show, you have to be in the control room and you have to like help everything along. And to me, that was always some of the most exciting times in the world. Cause you got to see the director at work. You got to see JD at work, mm-hmm. like, live because our shows were live too by the last year yeah so it was like you know we everything happened live so we had to there's no like second guessing yeah which is very valuable especially in in hollywood and tv you can't really there's no chance for second guessing and anything so you have to just go with your first choice and if you fucked up your first choice it just has to stick and so that was like such a a fun scary thing at gethard show that it's like hey this choice has to stick because we're live and i just said it so it's yeah. like, all right, <laughs> let's commit to this. Commit right away, and that that kind of stuff that makes you grow so much. And I took it to every job after that, and it was always like, you know, I I never learned what each title meant. I just knew what had to be done, and so I think that's helped me immensely. Yeah, that's awesome. And I want to hear more about Gethard, but first, let's take a break. And we are back. Uh, so let's keep going with the the Chris Gethard show. Were you like? In that, you know, Church of Chris Gethard, those people that, you know, were part of the, when it was just at UCB and then when it, you know, went to public access, like, were you part of that or when did you become part of the process? Uh, I didn't become part of the process till New York, till I moved to New York in 2014. So like I I had heard of Chris because I think everybody in comedy knew who Chris was and stuff. Yeah. If you're like looking at all the blogs and shit, you know who Chris is. And so I was like, mm-hmm. everybody saw his Diddy episode. Uh, well, his Diddy, the first time Diddy came and did his UCB show, yeah. that was all over every comedy thing. Yeah. So I knew who he was because I was like, oh shit, that was so cool to watch that yeah, whole that's thing insane. go along. <laughs> yeah, I was like, because I watched, because I think it was like the beginning of Twitter, right? Yeah. Because I just remember it should be, yeah. a hashtag. Like 2000- that 10, looked, it looked like Diddy get hard. And I was like, why is somebody asking Diddy to get hard? <laughs> and why is that a hashtag? And then uh-huh. I would click on it and found out that it was Diddy Gethard. And I was like, oh, that's, this is, who's this guy, Chris Gethard? So I looked him up and this was all while I was living in Chicago doing comedy, going to New York every now and then. And then when I moved to New York, I met Chris early on at Stand Up New York. We were both doing a set and we just hit it off right away and started became pretty fast friends and he was just helpful a lot he was like you know just giving advice and shit when i barely even knew him and uh and it was like good advice and good shit and i like got to see him do his thing and he was killing it from that from that friendship early on at Santa new york and i was just doing like a a check spot (laughs) so it was like because i was very new to the city nobody knew who i was i was like having a fun time making like i sort of snuck into new york in a weird way because i I knew Hannibal and I had already opened for Hannibal. So I was already sure I was going to do his show. But then I was like, all right, I'm going to do Knitting Factory, but I'm also going to pretend I don't know how to get on any of the other shows. <laughs> mm. So then I like, at an open mic, I'll get booked. But then I'll also pull my like card of like, hey, I've been visiting a lot. I, I'm going to do Knitting Factory. Can I do your show when I need to? But I was mainly like, let me just try to get on. So I did the check spot and then I met Chris there. We hit it off. And then like maybe eight months later, he hit me up like, you know, we need a, a writer to come in for a week or two, but I was already on the road. And so I missed that opportunity because I didn't know I wasn't smart in terms of jobs and stuff yet. <laughs> so I was like, oh, man, sorry, I'm on the road. I'm doing this 
road where I'm going to probably make $800. Yeah. That's and he's gonna, like, are you sure? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make $800 and this trip cost me 600. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm doing this, man. I gotta, I gotta do this. <laughs> <laughs> so then time passed, a few months passed and then they got a season two on fusion. And that's when I came along. Cause it, then he was like, you reached out again. But this time I had to write a packet, which made total sense. I had, I had fucked up the offer only option. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, I absolutely have to do a, a packet now. So I did a packet and then I had like some really fun ideas because he, he he talked to me, talked to me before I sent in the packet. and was like, just off the wall ideas, go crazy with it, really feel however you want to feel. And I had a idea for doing a the whole episode underwater and they really liked that. <laughs> and so... Uh-huh. I had some schematics to how it could be done too. I was like, you know, if you nice. really want to do a whole episode underwater, it can be done. There's ways to do it. And I wrote it all out and I wrote that and sent it in. And then they hired me. Whenever they hired me, it was like an amazing feeling because I, at the time I was going to different high schools and elementary schools. I was working for my brother and uh, my brother was going to have to fire me because I was bad at my job. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> I was still in teaching vein, but I was like working with this hip hop education like integrating learning with with hip hop and arts education mm-hmm. so it's easier for all the kids to get the subject matter than just like a yeah. specific type. So I was doing that going around to different schools doing that and then I like called my I you know the first person you're going to call is obviously your family so I called my brother mm-hmm. when I got the job he was like oh thank god I was really not really not looking forward to firing you so <laughs> thank, thank god you actually get to do your dream now so <laughs> but it was like it was awesome. Cause then I, that's great. I got to officially quit doing any teaching stuff for the first time yeah. since for the first time ever in my life, you know, <laughs> were you writing a lot of packets? Like, how did you know? Cause that's something for friends of mine who are, you know, getting into that kind of realm where it's like, okay, now I, now I have the opportunity to, you know, write a packet and send it, you know, wherever, yeah. how, what was that transition like from going, going to open mics, having shows, you know, feeling very comfortable in stand up yeah, kind of transitioning to, okay, now I have to write stuff down and like package it in a certain way. Was that like a tough transition? Yeah, it was. And, uh, the, the, I did a bunch of packets before that for, for, um, like Kimmel and all the, all the, you know, regular late night shows that, I'm so glad I didn't get it at the time, um, but just because it's not my style at all. But I, I definitely did not get those and felt you feel miserable when you don't get a, a job off a packet. So I had that and like I did an SNL packet, obviously didn't get that. I don't even think they read those, but <laughs> <laughs> but I did like I got a lot of rejections from that. And then something about it just felt right to do Gethard's packet. Something about that one made me put more into it. Because there is a sense, I know, I'm not the only one who goes to this, where you write a bunch of packets and then you're like, you kind of say, fuck it. And you're like, Mm -hmm. the next packet you get, you're like, I'm not giving it much thought. Like, it's just another packet I'm going to have to do. So then when he like called and was like, do some off the wall shit, this is not like any other packet. I was like, huh, all right, now this could actually be fun. And, you know, I looked at some of his other ideas for like the episodes I had. I was like, so it's like it actually, it's not like every late night show. It could actually be a fun job fun fun show to work on you know i again i had heard of the diddy thing so i knew he had cool guests and everything too so it's like not only does he have cool ideas with cool guests but i was like let me let me really actually like focus on this and it's something where you like you set it and forget it otherwise you're going to be stressing about it and not get it but i think that's always (laughs) best for me is to like just set it and forget it and be like yeah i did it since then not going to think about it 
I, I was actually mm-hmm. on the road at the time again with my at the time <laughs> girlfriend, currently wife. But we were on the road together at the time when I got the, the call about the job too. And I was like, oh, I forgot I you said, I no, did. thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm on the road, baby. <laughs> <laughs> on the road again, my friend. No, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> as far as career goes. That's, that's such an awesome. It's such a good feeling, especially when you like really need that money. <laughs> I am thinking about those like, when I first got booked my first commercial and stuff, it was mm-hmm. an Ally Bank commercial. I definitely remember that one. That was before Gethard Show. That was like right before mm-hmm. Gethard Show. So it was, if the Gethard Show one felt like, because when you book a commercial, you, you, I didn't know anything about residuals. So I just was like, cool, <laughs> I made whatever, 1200 that day. Great. I've got that money coming. Perfect. And then I was like, well, I can make that stretch, you know, because I'm probably going to get fired from my job. I'll make that 1200 <laughs> from this commercial stretch and then I'll hopefully find another commercial or something. But you know those are so rare but i was like you know i've got this long curly hair this is bookable (laughs) Uh (laughs) commercials don't really care about your acting talent sometimes Uh they just care about how you look and i had a had a look at the time Uh let me let me book these commercials while i still got this hair in this i was skinny because i just moved to new york So So then yeah that that booking of that ally bank commercial was such a good feeling and then followed by that uh the gathered show one man that was like those are unforgettable emails that either say offer or phone calls that say at the time it said CESD agency. You're like, ooh, CSD is <laughs> calling. That's that could only be good. <laughs> so on that show, who is your who is your group of people? Like, uh, so many amazing like Anna Fabrega, yeah, Drew Drew Johnson, Carmen. Was was Julio Torres on that, or did yeah, had he already yeah, moved Julio on? Was there. What was that room like? Like, I can't even imagine. Like, those are some of my favorite comics. Yeah, like I can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> being in a room with those people what was what was that like was that intimidating coming in like having this is your first you know room not not really everybody was kind of uh like nobody was was uh where they are now yet so like i knew i liked me and julio used to do open mics together so i knew he was definitely out there i was like you know this guy comes up with a book and he like reads these non sequitur things <laughs> and he's hilarious and i was like this is like he's when you see that on stage you're like well that person's gonna blow up because this is so out of the box and funny yeah so i knew he was i knew he was good and i knew he was gonna be just fine <laughs> as far as his <laughs> career i was like he's gonna he's and i knew he had like a, a means to an end sort of situation he was an immigrant and he had to yeah get citizenship and that was a lot of uh it was brought up because it was like i believe it was imbalanced when we were working together and he had to get like a lot of things in order in order to stay in the country yeah didn't he have to get like letter didn't like get there to have to yeah. like write a letter being yeah. like this person is a talent he has to you know he must stay. It seems here. like, yeah, exactly. That's that's such like a. I mean, a lot of these things can feel like life and death, or like life and not as not your plan, you know. But like that is like the such like a dramatic version of that feeling. Yeah. So it was wild to see him go through that. But we both got hired at the same time, so we were both coming in new, and like obviously, I think I was much more nervous. He has a lot more confidence <laughs> than me. <laughs> but, uh. but we were we were coming in new, so I was like. I knew Joe already, Joe Firestone. So I was like very reliant on her because she was the only one I yeah. knew other than Gethard at the show. So I came in being like, Joe's my friend here other than the guy who's probably going to be very busy because it's his show. So I'm like, let me just rely on her. So then she helped me through that whole first year. And Julio, I just like watching him work because he's so yeah. cool and interesting. And like everybody else would have a bunch of weird papers and shit on, his, on their desks. And he would have like a couple crystals on his <laughs> desk. And you're like, okay, that's... 
interesting. I like I like this guy. Like I think he's very cool and interesting. So I, I was like more in awe of him and for as far as how he worked and everything. I was like, this guy's really good. And then um somewhere near the end of the season he got called over to be a guest writer on SNL. And then that's when we all knew, like, oh he's leaving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's that's his uh cashing in his retirement. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Because the only person we knew to, to do a guest, I mean, Gethard did a guest writing stint mm-hmm. years before that. And then yeah. as far as when I when I moved to New York, though, the only person I knew who got a guest writing stint was Michael Che. And then his immediately, it might have been a visit because I visited New York a lot. But I'm, I just remember whenever he got that guest writing job, when Che did, I was like, oh, man, that's pretty dope. Like, this is huge. And then, and then uh, all of a sudden, all of a sudden head writer. Was, yeah, you're right. Like within years, he's head writer. You're like, oh, well, this was like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> This guy this was set in stone. Yeah, I love um, Anna's sketch where she's pitching all these wild ideas yes. because she thinks that Julia, like, she wants to get on SNL. Anna, Anna was also very cool to work. Like, everybody there is so awesome. I became great friends with Noah and Drew, obviously. Drespel, Nicole Drespel is amazing. Me and Robbie hit it off immediately when she got there. She's someone that, like, I know so, so little about, but, like, I have so much respect for her. Well, all, all I knew about her, because she was there, she got hired when no Anna Anna and Robbie got hired when Julio and maybe Joe I think Joe left as well yes because Joe was in the office and then Robbie replaced her as the office mate yeah so then Robbie all we knew was like she had left she was a former Hasidic kid who left and then moved to Canada and then <laughs> day one she told me she wrote on something called working moms or something and then also she had an Emmy for a kid show and I was like that's uh-huh. you're probably based on these three or four things, you're one of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> so you have an Emmy, you have an Emmy for a kid's show. You worked on something called Working Moms, and you left the Hus- Hasidic community at a, as yeah. a young kid to move to Toronto. That's so wild. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and you're and you're queer, which is like to leave mm-hmm. Hasidic community and become queer, be queer already. But yeah, to leave this yeah. and then be Except openly, yeah, you're <laughs> it's queer. like that's such a wild wild tale so i was like man this person yeah. now i mean i we're like very close we have very similar personalities we're both very socially awkward which <laughs> but i, I can talk- relate to that <laughs> yeah yeah she's somebody <laughs> i talk to all the time now though <laughs> so, yeah, yeah that's awesome i love that she stole the chris gathered show i know right <laughs> so funny so after your you know chris gathered did you stay on until until it uh that show ended or did you no i left um in the middle of uh, the last season. And what went into that decision? That was, uh, one thing that was always cool was I was up for a couple things while I was there and I went to talk to JD about it and he was like, take it. (laughs) (laughs) He would always be like, this is your like family, but you have to go make money. So go make money. He was like, you'll Mm -hmm. always be Gethard Show family, but like do it. And so Something I was up for that last, my last season there. I forget what it even was, but I didn't get it. But I remembered him saying that. And so I finished my pilot with the help of uh, my wife helped me a lot with that. And then my buddy Kevin Barnett helped me a lot with that. So I, I finished that pilot and then sent that out with, uh, I think it was my current agent. Yeah, it was It was definitely my current agent. And she, uh, she sent it to Comedy Central. They liked it. And they sent it to Bashir and Diallo who ran Southside. And so then I happened to be visiting LA and I was supposed to be coming back to New York to work on Gethard's show within like two weeks. But I got a call that said I got hired on Southside and I needed to stay and be moved to LA by Monday. So I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is happening quick. So that that uh, 
that was why I left Gethard's show was to go right to um, to Southside. And on that show, you get a story editor credit. Yeah. Did yeah. you feel that there was a difference in like your job description? No, which I, I love. I love that. That's why that's also like one of those transformative shows uh, for me because it was in the similar vein of Gethard's show where like titles don't really matter. That's how I felt at Southside. And so it was like, I didn't even know my title Honestly, when I when I got there, I was I was like, yeah, we're all writing the show. I don't know what is our title. Yeah, so then that was super fun. But I I think that was more so my agent and manager getting me that title than me actually knowing what it was. <laughs> so, yeah, totally. But that was yeah, that was awesome. And then from there, it was just like sort of kind of a roller coaster after that. From that first move to L.A., Southside job, sort of whatever that credit was. I think that led to a lot of other jobs because then. Right after that, I went to shoot Southside, and then while while we were shooting Southside, Bashir and Diallo were also working on Sherman Showcase, and then they mm-hmm. were like, just come do that. And so I did that, and then from there, it was like, once that ended, and then we ended up shooting that. Oh, then I did my special. So then I, <laughs> I shot my special. Minutes before I shot my special, I got a call the, from Nickelodeon, mm-hmm. and then they were like, it was a great call, I guess, and then they were like, we're going to hire you for all that and so Uh then i had to go on stage and do my special (laughs) and then i was like well this is crazy and then uh, then from there i uh left all that in the middle of the season to work on grownish and then left grownish to go back to Southside season two and then yeah it's been a kind of wild uh wild time yeah (laughs) it's 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 all that it's it's so much preparation and then all of a sudden it just the dam breaks you know and yeah like okay now i'm ready is there, did you have, like, in all of those rooms, like, what were your relationships like with, you know, these below-the-line people, like, you know, writers, PAs, writers' assistants, you know, showrunners' assistants, all of these kind of assistant editors, whoever, like, w- w- how much interaction did you have with those types of people? I feel like I was always very close with everybody, um, but they're definitely, certainly not every show is like that. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as being, being as diplomatic as I can, but like, yeah, definitely the bigger the show, the more you feel like everybody has to acknowledge the hierarchy, but I feel like not every show, they still, everybody was respected, but it's just, uh, I mean, even on, yeah, every show, they let the writer assistants have input so everybody's pretty good about that i have yet to work on a show where they're like completely shitty to a writer assistant but the bigger the show you i think maybe you also need some sort of separation i don't know Mm -hmm. because the room that was the biggest to me also you know there was times where not a like you it it takes such preparation to, to let everyone speak but it's also like yeah there's 20 people in the room so of course even as a stand-up, I'm like, yeah, but as a stand-up, I have the microphone. So I, mm-hmm. I'm well aware when it's my like when it's my turn to speak, I can just speak. And it's always my turn to speak when I'm on stage. <laughs> but in the bigger room, you're like, so I have to jump over all these other people just to get a point in? Like, that's not really my style. Was that difficult to kind of tra- like uh, become accustomed to, like kind of speaking up a little bit more? That was a big learning experience for me was being in a bigger room and being like, if I don't speak up, I don't get heard kind of thing. Because then it feels like elementary school all over again when I was a shy kid. And you're like, yeah, fuck, I don't, I'm not really into this. <laughs> so mm-hmm. now, yeah. now I'm more so attuned to the fact that I'm like, man, I really like smaller rooms. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's something that 
no one ever asked me for advice, but something that I would tell someone who asked for advice is like someone who has no experience in entertainment or anything like that. You should apply to, you know, internships and whatever office jobs at smaller companies. Yeah. Like my first internship was at this company. They had, when I was working there, the owner of the company, who was like the director of these documentaries, a producer and two editors. And that was it. And then yeah. I was like the the office intern. And I got so much experience, like in so many different arenas, like post and, and just yeah. like so many things that I, I have no real interest in, but it's really good to know things about. I am so thankful for that because like at the time I was applying to all these jobs, you know, I was, I went on NBC's, you know, job listing thing and I applied to all the different internships and page whatever and all that never got an email back for any of it but i'm so glad that i didn't have that because i got to learn so much more i feel like even though those things have merit where it's like maybe you kind of grow your network a little bit more or something yeah, like definitely. that yeah but then it's like if you have a big network but you don't know like how to do your job like, yeah where does that leave you you know and there's definitely in like there's benefits to the bigger things because like like totally. I was just saying, like the whole learning experience of being in that bigger room was like, well, now I'm more prepared than ever if I have to mm-hmm. go back to a bigger room. Yeah. Now it's like, well, now I know to be thrown in from it's basically like being going from an indie movie and then being thrown into a Marvel thing. Yeah. Where it's like, <laughs> oh, hold on. <laughs> like, <laughs> I wish I had done like a middle thing first. But yeah. 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 So it's like going from indie movie to Marvel. That was what was hard for me. As far uh-huh. as not not legitimately, but going from like a these small Comedy Central true TV shows to like this, mm-hmm. you know, kind of network environment, you're like, oh shit, this is way different. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> I need to learn really quick here. That's something that I wish I had known prior to moving forward. But I'm so glad I know now because now I'm like now I sort of feel like a Marvel character where I'm like, you know, now <laughs> I now I sort of get. I've been in all these different places now. Now I know. <clears throat> if I have to go back, how I'm going to enter the room, how I'm going to be in the room, you know, sort of taking more control of, of what I'm saying and whatnot. Yeah, that's so important. But also, you know, having those those small rooms to foster, you know, even when you're like, hey, do I really want to do this? Like I love on uh, Difficult People yeah. where you played a production assistant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of uh Julie's lines is like cuz in the, in the episode you're in she like gets a job in a writer's room and she's like, "Do you know that writing a TV show is just a bunch of people in a room talking to each other all day?" <laughs> like just like not putting that like dream that you have of like, "Oh, I want to be a writer." And like putting it into real terms of like, oh, I'm sitting in a room with these people all day, just like talking. Yep. (laughs) If you don't have those small, you know, those small experiences that are more fostering that like, okay, it's going to be okay. Like even if you have a bad day or you have a bad pitch or whatever, people are going to support you, whatever. If you're doing it in like that big room, it might just like kill your like, oh, actually, maybe I didn't want to be, you know, a writer like because I really didn't like that feeling. (laughs) Yes, yes. The the feeling definitely comes up where you get like extremely depressed in those bigger rooms where you're like, because, well, it's just because it's so many people that it's like, did I just fuck up? I, I had like a clear chance to impress and I didn't impress. So maybe I should yeah. like go back home. <laughs> yeah. Are you someone that like really puts an emphasis on like first impressions and stuff like that? Like I'm so, 
I get so stressed about like meeting people for the first time or like the first time I speak, you know, in some, any kind of oh, creative. Yeah. I have undiagnosed anxiety. So <laughs> 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 like, well, I, my, more my, like my mom was talking to my wife about it and it was very clear cut after the conversation that I just grew up with anxiety, mm-hmm. but it wasn't so bad. Now it would have been treated because now I feel like we're more cognizant of who has anxiety and making sure they're medicated. But in mm-hmm. the eighties we were not. And so <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody did anything, but looking back, that's clearly what I have. Cause then these rooms like that. Yeah. I can't, I'll just fucking shut down on accident. Well, I, I did now I'm better at it. Cause I've now been in different rooms since the bigger room and been like, all right, well now I get how to not, make myself feel miserable <laughs> yeah and was it just through like exposure therapy like yeah. essentially or yeah. were there it was being dropped just dropped in the pool where you're like <laughs> learning how to swim they're like you swam before right and it's like yeah but not laps like this jesus yeah <laughs> <laughs> this has been this has been amazing such like a enlightening conversation on like such a such an interesting path. Thank you so much for talking. Is there anything you want to plug? Watch all those shows. I love every show. Even Learning Curve shows, I, I really love all those shows. So watch them when they come out. Gronish, I believe, comes out in January, the season I worked on. Southside is moving to HBO Max. I think that's also, that might be January. I'm so pumped for that because <laughs> Comedy Central's <laughs> interface is not great. <laughs> so I'm excited to watch it on a on a platform that's a little bit more user-friendly. I cannot wait until what else there's sermon showcase special is is out now in the first seasons on hulu so that mm-hmm. is watchable and then um yeah we're working on season two of that and we're working on there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline i don't know just follow at mr will miles on everything and i'll yeah. probably be retweeting social justice stuff but then in the midst of that i'll be <laughs> randomly plugging shit <laughs> yeah perfect this is amazing this has been great thank you so much will thank you this is really fun bye bye i'd like to thank will for taking the time to come on the show and my producer liz moppin for helping me put this episode together i'm cooper peltz and this has been pa nation see you next time